Welcome to the Ponder a New Podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Myalis, and this season we're looking at the early chapters of the book of Genesis, and this week we're going to finish chapter 2 and learn more about what happens in the Garden of Eden. My two thought questions as you prepare to listen to the podcast today are, first of all, when have you felt the most lonely in your life, and when have you felt the most connected deeply to other people or another person in your life? Because the Garden of Eden and what we're going to hear about this week is really about relationships with God, but now really we're going to focus this week on relationships with each other. I see trees of green, red roses too, I see them blue for me and you, and I think to myself, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air, and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What did you, or what do you call your grandparents? When a child is learning how to say mom and dad, mom and dad typically correct them to make sure they get the pronunciation right. But when it comes to grandparents, normally grandparents will accept whatever offering that the grandchild has. And I'm often amazed at just the wide variety of of names which people call their their grandparents. Um, Again, parents correct, but grandparents just simply accept. Uh, The power dynamic has shifted, and we know that within the parent-child, the parent's the boss. Both the grandchild, grandparent, the grandchild is the boss, right? We all know this. And uh, so there's a power to name somebody. Um, you know, we kids learn how to name their stuffed animals. We can name people. Um, but it's not just a, a, a power over somebody. It's sort of a, it's a, you're sort of one of us. You're part of my tribe now. Like when somebody gets a name when they join a tribe or, or you know, a, a teammate finally kind of christens you with, with a nickname, so to speak. Um, and this is what's happening here where Adam is given by God this power 
to name creation. But again, this is, it's not just simply a lording over, but I think it's also drawing Adam in, uh, making Adam's relationship and connection with creation even stronger. This is, in, in many ways, what it means to be in the image of God, to have some sort of authority, power, dominion, yet there's an act of care, of creativity, of, of intimacy, of relationship. This goes back again to what we've been talking about here as we reflect on these early chapters of Genesis. One of my professors used uh, this argument or this idea that Adam was given the power to name the animals as evidence of Adam being a co-creator and humanity as co-creators. I think that may linguistically and theologically go too far, Um, although the person who taught me that knew more about the Old Testament than I do, that's for sure, Um, Terry Fredheim. But but nonetheless, I, I think that there really is something awesome and um, again in line what we've been talking about Genesis 1 and 2 in terms of God empowering and enabling us as humans to have uh, a careful and caring uh, dominion over uh, creation in this highly relational way. We should bring about what what caused Adam to need to name the animals. Well, it turns out that when God saw that Adam was alone, God declared that it wasn't good. And I think this is really significant because up to this point in the Bible, everything has only been declared to be good. Or in fact, when God saw that humanity, both men and women, were created, God said it is very good. So this is the first time we've heard God actually judge something not to be good. And what does God judge not to be good? But loneliness. And on the one level, it's sort of like a funny kind of scene where there's all these animals that sort of get to audition for Adam's best friend, sort of creation's first reality TV show. Uh, You know, will it be the dog? Could it be? Could it be this little corgi? You know, or whatever. But uh, it turns out that a pet, as wonderful as a pet is, and again, I can only imagine some of the animals here auditioning to be around Adam. But in the end, no matter how good a pet is, a pet isn't the same as a human. And... So God has to work. But I want to just really pause here and let this sink in, that the first problem in the Bible is not human disobedience to God. That happens in Genesis chapter 3. And around that, a lot of theology is oriented, that humans, uh, out of pride, out of curiosity, out of sinfulness, chose not to listen to God's commands. And that sets into motion a whole bunch of things, including getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But at this point, the very first problem in the Bible is loneliness. And there's something uh, so true and so compassionate about that and I, and I don't necessarily want to pit Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 against each other because the Bible doesn't. What I would just like to offer is that, again, much of theology writes about Genesis 3 as the fall. But there's also, again, this primal loneliness that is the somehow in the human condition that God is working to, to somehow improve. And that then that leads us, I really, if you think about that as a lens, though, what is the work of, of God then in Jesus Christ? Well, it's to make us not lonely, to give us 
fellowship. And then this unfolds itself. Um, what is Jesus doing the night before he's betrayed? He's gathered his disciples together in this meal, in which he washes their feet and says to them in the Gospel of John, I am calling you my friend. And then on the day of Pentecost, uh, there's this pronunciation of baptism and the forgiveness of sins. And what does this lead to but a community in which people are, are sharing with one another what they have. They're having true fellowship. Uh, the fancy Greek word there is koinonia. And then in the book of Revelation, you see that all of creation is gathered and the tree of life then in its leaves are for the healing of the nations. They're bringing back together people. So Yes, I don't want to undermine the reality of human disobedience or the way in, in which the estrangement of humans ultimately leads to violence. This is chapter 4 of Genesis. But I just want to say that at its core, that, that loneliness um, is, is something that, um, it's again the first problem in the Bible, and it's, it's going to be solved ultimately not by uh, this other one human, but by Jesus Christ, and, and that's and I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to that uh, a little bit bit later. But again, I just wanted to uh, draw our attention there to the whole of all of of all of yeah. The, the loneliness was the first problem in the Bible. Well, then God sets about and decides that again the pets aren't good enough, and so God seeks to create another human for Adam, and it's going to be a woman. Uh, the first woman, and it's really cool that, and there's some Jewish, whether they're called midrash, and those are commentaries by rabbis over the centuries, and some of them, again, are hundreds, thousands of years old. And there's a, a midrash about why God chooses the rib as the location to sort of draw out of Adam. And, and that is because if it had been from the head, then Adam could have looked down or sorry, that Eve could have looked down on Adam. And if it had been from Adam's foot, then Adam could have looked down on Eve. But instead, it was from the rib. And so they're meant to be equals. There is, unfortunately, a lot of baggage here. And so I'm going to use the word complementary. But I realize if you grew up in certain uh, sort of fundamentalist, uh, sometimes could be called evangelical circles, that this word complementarianism kind of carries with it its own set of baggage about gender expectations. So I just want to say that there is a sense in the Bible that the genders are different and complementary. I, I just don't think any culture has ever gotten it exactly the way that God wants us to, um, but that there really wasn't any sort of hierarchy between uh, the genders, that they were just there to be for each other. And what's really cool then is that the first words out of a man's mouth, out of a human's mouth, the first words out of a human's mouth are words in praise and in celebration uh, as he's just in awe of, um, of the one God has, has made for him. And uh, it's just a beautiful thing. Again, the first words out of a, out of a human being in the Bible are uh, a man praising uh, God in just in awe of, um, of the woman that has been um, made for that they can be for each other. So this is leading now into Adam and Eve. And so I want to, I'm going to reflect a little bit on uh, marriage. But before I do, I want to say 
just uh, two things about that. And as basically, pastors like myself typically shy away from talking about marriage publicly. And part of the challenge is that the sort of perception about what Christianity teaches about marriage is um, that it's for a man and a woman and don't have sex until you're married. And those two come under real fire within our sort of our, our current cultural matrix. And, and I think it can be really uncomfortable for pastors like myself then to sort of wade into these waters for fear if we sort of deviate too much from the historically given script that we're sort of opening Pandora's box. It's a little bit tough to kind of really nuance or, or talk about things given, again, how sort of acidic uh, these debates um, and, and these discussions have, have become. The other thing is that, frankly, there's just a lot of people in my church that aren't married, um, that they're uh, single, they're divorced, they're widowed, or there's plenty of people who are in marriages that are uh, abusive, or there's been adultery, um, uh, addictions, all sorts of things. And, and so, um, again, I think a lot of us as, as pastors struggle with uh, publicly talking about marriage in a way that's not going to sort of um, get us tripped up in culture wars or just really end up being hurtful for for people who are are, are not um, married. So I, I want to though reflect. I'm going to again return to all this again. I earlier said I'd return, and now I'm going to say I'm going to return again uh, to, to sort of try to wrap to sort of summarize this in the end. For well, what does this have to say for people that aren't married? But I, I do think it's worth spending some time putting down the sort of the cultural warfare uh, about marriage and just kind of saying, okay, well, what what really is marriage about in the Bible? And what what uh, and to get at this, I want to look at the, the later verses here. We've heard about uh, Adam and Eve being a helper for each other. And then it says uh, in verse uh, 24, hence um, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife so that they become one flesh. And the two of them were naked, and the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Okay. First of all, that they're designed to be helpers for each other. And in, in the healthiest of, of uh, any relationship, but especially marriage, people would view each other as a servant to each other, uh, trying to outdo one another and showing honor. But, what's, but what I want to get at there, again, that can be easily forgotten, and perhaps I should just dwell on that point a lot longer. But to really help somebody, um, they have to acknowledge their need for help. And within a, a marriage, I, I think it's a, a lifelong process of both learning how um, the gifts we have actually can be helpful and, and not hurtful to somebody, and also learning how to accept the gifts and the help of the other person. Again, this is true in in. Uh, family and uh, also again in deep friendship relationships um, but uh, parent-child uh, even especially as that relationship changes over the life but uh, also again within in marriage learning how we actually can be helpful a lot of times our, our own tendencies in fact the tendencies that the person was attracted to in us can also drive them nuts <laughs> uh, so again learning how to help and also how to receive that help because receiving help uh, it really is an act of vulnerability, 
And here we hear that Adam and Eve are naked. And the point is that there's nothing that's hidden. And, you know, within a household, I think, again, within most relationships, uh, I think also within marriage, eventually it all kind of comes out in the wash. You can't do somebody else's laundry and eventually not figure out what's, what's going on in their lives. Um, so our dirty laundry is always exposed to the other person. And, and so that, um, that and, and then that then provides a ground then for, for intimacy as uh, ultimately sexual intimacy as well. One thing that's fascinating is that I was reading this book about uh, neuroscience and how people actually fall in love. And it's sort of like in the beginning, you um, have to uh, both be vulnerable and also excite the person. But then after a while, you only have to be vulnerable. <laughs> that, that, that provides the, the, uh, the connection between the two people. So at first you have to charm. And then after a while, you just have to be real and be real again and again and again uh, with them. And, and that really, again, sort of binds the two together. And, and, and if you're going to be that intimate with somebody, that's why you want the, the promises of marriage. You want, if you're going to sort of expose yourself and all of your dirty laundry on a constant basis to this person, you want to have a profound sense that they're going to be there, not just today, but that they've bound themselves. Um, and um, the, the other, just, okay, see, I was going to go into a culture, I was going to wade into cultural warfare, but I decided not to. I'm not, I'm not going to go there. Um, but the last thing just about is that they, uh, they bind each other to become a uh, husband and wife. They sort of, they leave their previous families and they cling to one another. Um, it's fascinating that it's the man who leaves um, when historically more accurate to say probably the woman left. But, well, anyway, all sorts of family dynamics we can get into here. But the point of all of this is that there's a creation of a new familial entity, um, a new switching of primary loyalty within, within a couple. So I wanted to take a step back and say, okay, like, at its theoretical best, what should this relationship be about? It should be about uh, having a partner who helps us, who we help them, we're intimate, we're revealed as, as, as who we are, um, and, and we sort of form our own new family unit. Uh, and all of that then requires a binding commitment of the two parties to, to make it uh, work. Wow. Okay, so that in a nutshell is, is sort of the glorious vision of marriage. But as a pastor, I just know that that's not the kind of relationship that many people find themselves in. Uh, many people, again, are, are single, uh, happily single, especially at certain parts of their life. Other people are, are long widowed um, or even recently widowed. Um, other people, again, are divorced. Other people have – there's all sorts of uh, varieties. And, and even then within – Families and households, families and households come in, in many shapes and, and sizes um, of, of who lives together in housing groups at, at what time. And so what I, what I want to offer um, is a sort of, um, first of all, just a, a biblical pastoral acknowledgement that uh, although marriage is one uh, key design of God to, for companionship in this world, it's, it's, uh, it 
can look really different, and the Bible includes stories of all sorts of different kinds of families uh, that are very culturally different from the ones we are in. And as a pastor, I've seen how many f- shapes and sizes of families uh, God can work in. The other thing uh, is that um, that ultimately the family uh, as a biological unit or even a legal one is actually not the ultimate answer for a God to the human uh, question of loneliness. And it's actually going to be the church in Jesus Christ. That the New Testament makes it clear that the the vision for solving the conundrum of human loneliness is again not one individual for us, but a whole, a whole tribe, a whole clan, a whole church. And I've seen this again, and again in my life, where, um, especially for widows, I've just seen the way in which their other widows and the other, and even the generations within the church uh, provide a capacity for us that I think is is actually greater than an individual family to really meet uh, the needs that that we have. So lots here to chew on, uh, but uh, again, hopefully some uh, fascinating things about naming, uh, about um, about loneliness, about uh, the beautiful intentions of marriage with a, a recognition that as it turns out, yeah, that's not the ultimate solution, but the ultimate one is the the marriage of Christ and and the church and, and Christ's love within the community for us.